We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. As you know, it's easy to sing hymns and not pay attention to the words. Go back to number 338, which we have done a couple of times. The words say in verse 3, 
Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. That speaks of the futility of self-reformation, that I've got to make myself better before I come to Christ. Jesus didn't die for better people. He died for worser people, sinners, people who need him. Uh, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. There's the thought again, nor of fitness fondly dream, like you can be fit, outfitted yourself. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That is a blessing, my friends. All, your, all the fitness that you need is to feel your need of him. Christ came to save sinful men. And that's what he did. And we get to enjoy the benefits of that. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, please. Chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. The first three verses, I have notes uh, available for you on the church website, but they are not in your bulletin. It simply got too long and unwieldy (laughs) to uh, put it all in the bulletin today. So uh, Luke 8, 1 through 3 to begin, and then we'll uh, dip into and see how far we get into Luke 8, 4 to 15. Jesus continued throughout the nation of Israel preaching about the kingdom of God. It tells us in chapter 8, verse number 1, it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. That bringing glad tidings is the word, the verb, euangelizo, which is to bring good news, to evangelize, as we call it. And it says the twelve were with him as he went about preaching the kingdom of God. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. First point, he preaches the good news to all these villages. It's easy, I think, to overlook that Jesus was teaching glad tidings. As I said, Galizo, the, the evangel, as it's called by some. Early in the gospel, Luke emphasizes repentance, Even later in Luke 8, he records about those who do not see and understand the message. We'll come to that later. And there is a judgment side to the message. There is, you know, a way we can kind of get our eyes focused there on judgment and uh, get our eyes off of the good side of the message. And and many people do kind of look on the half-empty or maybe we should say fully empty side in their mind of Christian faith. They think it's just doom and gloom and judgment and no joy, but that's a complete mischaracterization of what the Christian faith is in following Christ. Those outcomes of judgment and gloom are indeed the results of not following Christ. They are the default position of the world. It's simply the gospel is saying this is where everyone is under the wrath of God. This is the existing state of things because of the rebellion of humanity. Doom and judgment are just that normal state, and Jesus has come to undo that, and that's why it's good news. The Christian message is not, in the first place, bad news, although it has to presuppose some bad news to have a context for the good news. It itself is good. It's a relief, isn't it, to know that God has done something about our sad estate. He came 
to care for us. It's good news to find out that you can be rescued from a condition in which your heart is darkened against God and in which the world is quite literally going to hell. Jesus' message is a happy one, a joyful one, a relieving one. It's a good news that he has. And I, sometimes I, I wonder why do we get all concerned and worked up and kind of clam up about sharing good news with people? Because it is that. Focus on that, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Tells us that uh, he has some co-laborers with him in the text, and I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't rush over this, you know, very quickly and get to the parable that follows in verse four because of the content, particularly of verses two and three. Luke only devotes a few words to the fact that the twelve were with him, just the end of verse number one, and we don't, you know, we're not surprised by that because. Uh, you know, they're with him all the time, and we see that in the Gospels many times. But he devotes two entire verses to describe some of the women who come alongside of Jesus and the apostles and minister uh, with them. There are three that are named here, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And then it says, and many others. So these maybe were the leaders of that group, or they or just ones particularly worthy of calling out because they had had very uh, difficult circumstances out of which the Lord raised them. So Mary Magdalene was dispossessed of seven demons. One is too many, seven. She must have been in a state, in a terrible estate, and the Lord saved her from that, and she became a follower of Christ. And then you have Joanna. Joanna is uh, described as the wife of this person, Chusa, who was Herod's steward. So she was very highly placed, in, uh, at least her husband was, in the government of the time. Uh, very interesting that she was able to get away from that and go and itinerate, be on an itinerant ministry with the Lord. And then uh, mentioned is, lastly, thirdly, Susanna. We don't have any other details here from this text about her. And many others, many others. Uh, this is very countercultural, what we just read here. At the time, women wouldn't be a part of the action. Um, just thinking back to chapter 7 at the end, the whole last part of it is about this sinful woman in the city who came to Jesus and she was saved, washed clean of her sins. She, of course, she washed the feet of the Lord with her tears and wiped them with her hair and anointed him with the fragrant oil and all of that. Uh, and then, you know, if you think back to the genealogies of Christ, you have women appearing in those. This is very odd for the time. You have to understand that. It kind of sticks out. Uh, it's not a sore thumb, but it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because it just wouldn't be that way in the culture. And you see that with, like, uh, the Pharisee who invited uh, Jesus to his house. Just, you know seeing this woman come in and just having just despising her, just having no, no good word for her at all. But these women helped the ministry of Jesus in a very practical way by providing from their means that they had at their disposal. Perhaps some of them had financial means to provide for 
uh, food and occasional lodging or travel expenses. Perhaps they had time and freedom to serve and meal preparation and necessary chores for this group. You know, sometimes we think maybe Jesus walking along and there's a couple disciples following him, but if you think it's Jesus and 12 disciples and these three women that are named and many others, you start to get up to a group of 20 to 30 at least. I mean, this is a, this is a traveling band here. This is a party of people that is going on, and uh, they're you know, going from place to place. There's going to be a lot. Think of feeding 25 people, uh, you know, cleaning, chores, preparations, gathering necessary supplies, repairing sandals, shoes, you know, all that stuff. Who knows? However they served, whatever way in which they served, the point is that they served and that they helped advance the good news. They helped advance the good news. So if you're a servant of whatever you know, sort, of whatever job description in the church, if you're one of the women in the church that's doing you know, tasks like nursery or helping in the kitchen or around cleaning or different things, supporting roles, you have an important place in the ministry of the church besides your ability to evangelize, you know, those who are your friends and contacts. Uh, you have a ministry to accomplish. We all have a ministry to accomplish. Maybe sharing the good news at one time and serving the church so that others can do the same at another time, but it's critical. Critical, then I think it's one of the reasons why Luke includes this here. He's giving sort of credit where credit is due and elevating the status of women in the Christian ministry to a place that they would have never had if it had just followed the cultural kind of, you know, practices of the time. So I'm grateful for that. And I trust that you will take that ministry that God has given you seriously and really use it well. From there, we move into chapter 8, verse 4 and a more generally applicable message to all people, all listeners to the message of the gospel of Christ. And I thought that I would uh, use an illustration to help us see the importance of this in our lives. The illustration is about the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Norway. It's a secure backup facility for the world's crop diversity on the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen in the remote Arctic Svalbard archipelago. The uh, seed vault provides long-term storage of duplicates of seeds conserved in gene banks around the world. This provides security for the world's food supply against loss of seeds in gene banks due to mismanagement, accident equipment failures, funding cuts, war, sabotage, and I think probably most on people's mind, disease and natural disasters, kind of the... Um, the prevailing apocalypticism that you know we see around, that the world's going to end, we're going to flood out, or there's going to be an asteroid or some terrible thing, without regard for what the scriptures teach. I'm not concerned about being wiped out by an asteroid. Uh, God's going to do his plan, and he's going to work it out just as he has laid it out here in the scriptures. But the seed vault is managed under terms spelled out in a tripartite agreement among the Norwegian group, the Crop Trust, and the Nordic Genetic Resource Center. The Norwegian government entirely funded the seed vault's approximately $8.8 million construction cost. Norway and the Crop Trust pay for operational expenses. 
storing seeds there is free to depositors, like a bank, you know, seed bank. And the vault has been depicted in several films and other art forms. In 1984, just to go back a little bit, the Nordic Gene Bank, now Nordgen, began storing backup Nordic plant germplasm via frozen seeds in an abandoned coal mine outside of a, a city there. In 2001, the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources uh, was adopted and national governments began to ratify the treaty soon after that. The treaty establishes a multi-layered system for plant uh, genetic resources that includes providing access to the materials and mechanisms so that those who use the resources can share any derived benefits. There was a team led by a conservationist named Fowler in association with that organization uh, actively campaigned for the development of the seed vault and approached the Norwegian government. They conducted a feasibility study in 04 and concurred that Svalbard was an appropriate location for long-term storage. You can look up more about that. It's just because of its elevation, it's uh, the, the, how cold it is there and stuff like that. If they feel that it would be well protected in case of a, a disaster of some sort. As part of the vault's anniversary, more than 90,000 food crop seeds samples rather, were placed into storage, bringing the total number of seed samples to 400,000. Among the new seeds were 32 varieties of potatoes from Ireland's gene banks and 20,000 new samples from the U.S. Agricultural Research Service. Others from Canada, Switzerland, Colombia, Mexico, and Syria. The shipment from those countries brought the total number of seeds stored in the vault to over 20 million. The location and details of its construction are also interesting for you know, the engineer part of me and perhaps of you. A feasibility study, the article goes on to say, uh, prior to construction determined that the seed vault could preserve most major food crop seeds for hundreds of years. Some, including those of important grains, could potentially remain viable for thousands of years. As of three years ago, there were 87 depositors, many of whom contributed tens of thousands of seeds into the storage vault. Now, regardless of the beliefs of those people uh, who developed the seed bank, you know, you might think, well, they come from a place of, you know, very great pessimism or environmentalism or apocalypticism or whatever. Regardless of that, to me, it's an impressive feat of human cooperation and could be useful in some local areas in terms of future calamity, famines and, and devastation of that nature. Freezing seeds in a vault is one thing you can do with them. But on the short-term time scale, it seems much more useful to use the seeds by planting and tending to them and uh, getting the fruit out of them. It's also, of course, wise to save seeds for next season, especially varieties that turned out to be very fruitful and ones that you like the taste of, say. But seeds are meant to be grown. Seeds do very little if, as in the seed vault, they're sealed in aluminum airtight bags or glass test tubes at negative 18 degrees Celsius, unable to germinate, remaining in stasis for hundreds if not thousands of years and perhaps never ever even used. Seeds can be scavenged, trampled upon, eaten by birds, or spring up quickly and perish just as quickly due to lack of moisture or sunshine. Seeds can grow but be choked out by thorns and other weeds. You can even eat seeds, and then they're dissolved in your stomach and only provide an infinitesimal fraction of the food value that they would have provided if grown 
and to bring forth many other seeds and the fruit that was associated with those seeds of whatever sort that it was. Seeds can be put on the shelf in the basement or on a shelf in the garage. Of course, they're not going to last too long that way. Seeds can become the objects of examination and study and writing papers. You You might dissect one and put it under a microscope and write about it in a botany article in an academic journal. And I thought all of this might be a fitting illustration of a biblical truth because Jesus likens the Word of God to a seed. Let's read the parable 8.4. It says, When a great multitude had gathered, they had come to him from every city. He spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it has been given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience." So after reading the parable a few times, you're confronted immediately with the idea of what do I kind of, how do I file this away in my brain? What's the title of this? In my Bible, in many Bibles, it'll say the parable of the sower. But I think it's probably better called the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils. The sower actually doesn't get as much um, airtime here because he just goes out and he scatters the seed. But the action is in the different responses of the soils to that seed. If you outline the parable in its explanation, you'll notice that there are four soils, but only one produces fruit, and the three that remain do not. There's also the seed, there's Satan, there's the fruit, and we'll look at all these aspects to better understand the parable. In verses 9 and 10, though, right in the middle... Between the parable and its explanation, we see the disciples ask this question. They don't fully understand the meaning of the parable, so they ask, good thing to do. And Jesus replies that God had granted them the ability to understand the truths being revealed about the kingdom of God, but not everybody has that. Not everybody has that gracious gift from God. They don't have the spiritual sight or hearing that is tuned to resonate with God's truth, and thus they do not see and do not understand. There's a quotation here from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9, and this quotation, although we could go back there and look at it, it's it's quite a similar situation as it is here. 
Isaiah prophesying, people not listening. Jesus teaching, people not hearing what he has to say. And it's really a judgment from God. In his wisdom, God has allowed hearts to remain hardened and thus not perceive the significance of this parable or of all the parables. The privilege here for us is if we grasp this, not only with mental apprehension, but also with spiritual fruitfulness. If, that, if you grasp it that way, then please give thanks to God that he has granted you the ability, the eyes open, the understanding through all the different means that God does that, how you were brought up, the Bible that you read, you know, the, the church that you went to and all of that. Be glad that God has provided that for you to open your eyes to understand and your ears to hear the parable and, and other parables as well. Now, let me say this too. This text here in verse 10 talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. What is that? What is that? Well, a mystery is something that was unknown that now is known. And uh, the, the mystery has to do with how the kingdom is introduced into the world and how it is not received by many. You know, normally a king comes, he conquers, he takes over, uh, you know, doesn't take a vote from the citizens of the country, he just takes it over. No offers, no niceties, just victory and submission. But the kingdom of God is different, at least initially. It propagates itself by messengers, sharing a message, spreading good news of a king coming, uh, which some recipients reject and some outside forces snatch away so that people will not respond. The uh, kingdom of God, Jesus said elsewhere, is uh, shut up. You are shutting it up to others to enter it. He talked to, he, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. But the message spreading like this sowing of seed is how Jesus' kingdom is spread, not by military force. Now, truly, later on, uh, it will come in a different way, more similar to the other kingdoms of the world. For when Jesus comes back to reign, he will establish his rule of righteousness over the globe. Whether or not people want to receive it, he will do that. Now, let's look at the sower for a moment. I think we would agree that if uh, we were talking about a sower, that Christ would be the best and main sower, the, the very best that there is, the best planter, the best gardener. The prophets before him also spread the message of the kingdom of God and also you and me, you and I are responsible for spreading the message of the gospel of Christ after the Lord Evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, and apostles in the first century and everyday Christians are sowers. Jesus used a farming illustration to show us that this is not rocket science. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree to be a, a farmer. You don't, although you, you, these days you can because of all the science involved, but you understand what I mean. You don't have to have a, a, a degree from a seminary in order to sow the seed like you plant the seed of grass in your yard. Anybody can do that cover it, water it, tend it, and then in a few weeks you have green grass growing. This means that you too can spread the message and be a sower of the word. And you must, for the sake of Christ's name, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of growing and strengthening this church and all churches and for your eternal reward, you have to sow the seed. Now, how does the sower do his work? 
It says that uh, he went out to sow, and uh, some fell here and some fell there, and uh, it doesn't seem that he was too discriminatory about how he spread the seed, does it? You know, today we're not going to purposely throw the seed onto the asphalt pathway or onto the the uh, trodden down dirt of a well-worn pathway, say, from the house to the barn or something like that, but we'll sow it elsewhere. But some will bounce and, you know, get to that spot uh, that, you know, doesn't look too promising. Uh, so in real farming, we don't go out of our way to plant on bad soil or on rocks or whatever. We clear the rocks. We understand that is a necessity to correct and successful farming. But in spiritual farming, you cannot, you cannot tell the soil by mere external appearance. If you try to do that, you're expressing partiality and favoritism, which God does not approve. You know, pause and make a mental picture in your mind of a person that you think would never receive the gospel. Be honest with yourself about what that mental picture looks like. Someone with a certain skin color, tattoos, piercings, hairstyle, hair color, lifestyle, past expressions of their worldview. How do you know what's going to happen when you cast the seed on that soil? You simply do not know. So whatever that mental picture is that you just made, I'm sorry that I asked you to make it because now I'm going to tell you to delete it. Okay? Forget it. The sower sows the seed broadly, widely. How do you know that there's not going to be a Mary Magdalene who needs the gospel? You would look at and say, well, that person's too far gone. Not an, not an option, not a good candidate. No, that's not how the scriptures work. That's not how God works either. So take up your role as a sower if you are a saved person. But then we go on to the seed. The seed represents the word here of the kingdom of God. And it's generic enough, this seed, to not you know, be limited to one part of the Bible's message, say John 3.16 or something. Contextually, it refers to all the things that Jesus has been teaching in his early ministry, 8.1, for example, we just read, he preached all these places, bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. If you don't know how to do that today, then you better find out. We better find out together, work on this, so we can also go about and be ready at, a, at the drop of a hat to give anyone the message of the kingdom of God. Included in this is the fact that Christ is king, that the kingdom of heaven is near, that it's necessary to repent in order to be a citizen of it, uh, the character and conduct of such kingdom citizens, like in the Sermon on the Mount, the authentication of the king through his miracles of healing and raising the dead, removing demons and so on, and, and the spread of that message to the disciples, um, you know, the, the need to be born again to enter the kingdom, that we must have those things right on our lips, ready to share with people even if they're not willing to receive it, at least initially. Let's boil down the idea of the seed as the word of God to mean the message that proclaims the king, his kingdom, participation in the kingdom through repentance and the resulting conduct of kingdom citizens. And another implication of that is, although it's not here because the church hasn't begun, is what do Christians do once they begin to walk with the Lord? Well, they gather in local churches like this one 
and receive the ministry of the word and serve together in order to bring the message to others. So even though it's not here, it is Matthew 20, well, Matthew 16, Matthew 28, and then all of the New Testament epistles. We are, as our brother prayed this morning, uh, little embassies of heaven, embassies of the kingdom of heaven. That's where you're at now. You've just come to the embassy for, uh, for respite, for encouragement, for instruction, and you'll go back out into the world as an expatriate of the kingdom of God dwelling in another place, in another country, as it were. We don't enter into the kingdom immediately, but we are those foreign nationals, those expatriates that belong elsewhere, and that's why we're bringing the message as ambassadors of this embassy outpost of uh, the kingdom of God. So we've looked at the sower, we've looked briefly at the seed, the word of God, the kingdom of God and its message, but then also there's the soil and the fruit, and here's really where the core message is of the parable. The soil represents the heart of the recipient of the preaching. The fruit represents the life or conduct or character that comes out of that person. In order to understand this, we have to recognize that a tree is known by its fruit or a plant is known by its fruit. If there's no fruit, that means nothing useful, no effective change, no difference. The springing up of a scrawny plant among the rocks or the thorns is not what Jesus intends to portray as okay. Okay, so don't, what I want to do is disabuse you of the knowledge, or the idea rather, the false knowledge, the false idea that, well, the seed on the, on the wayside, that got gobbled up and, and taken away or trampled down, didn't grow at all, didn't germinate, that that's the only bad one. This other one, that sprung up, and this second or third one sprung up, and the fourth one sprung up. So those are three good results, not. There are three, three bad results, no fruit. And then only one good result. The last soil that brought forth fruit is what the Lord is commending. What the Lord is saying is the right, proper outcome of salvation. Fruit is what is represented by uh, representing spiritual life. What he intends to convey is that when, plant, when the plant produces fruit, it is that fruit that shows that the person is really alive. And God is at work. There are four kinds of soil upon which the seed was scattered. Think of them again in your mind, the walking path, the rock, the thorns, and the good soil. Many want to say that only the road, the walking path, represents an unsaved person, but there's no fruit in three cases. If there's no fruit, how can you know there's salvation? Well, you can't because there isn't. Now, in Matthew's version of the parable, there are six distinguishable results. There's the, the wayside where there's nothing, there's the uh, rocky soil, there's the thorny soil, and then there's good soil that produces 30, 60, or 90, or 30, 60, or 100, rather. Uh, in, in Luke's edition of the account here, there's only the 100x fruit level. So just to kind of close out this, uh, maybe this idea for you. Does it sound right if somebody's spiritual life is trampled, devoured, scorched, and choked? It doesn't sound good. That's because it's not good. Um, viewing the fruit from another angle, we, we see different levels of fruitfulness. You know, in this parable, there's two. There's zero or there's fruitfulness. In Matthew's version of it, there's three levels of fruitfulness. 
Um, but the seeds choked by the thorns had the same basic result as if they had not germinated at all. They're scorched by the sun and came to the same zero result as if they had not even germinated. There, these are, uh, or sorry, there are also characteristics of the soil that, and the plant that indicate problems in the non-fruitful cases. There's no depth of earth, no root, no moisture, temporary, stumbling, cares, deceitfulness, unfruitfulness. All those are very clear that uh, the Lord is trying to help us understand the seed has not had any effect. The good ground produces a good crop. That's where all the action is. Fruit is where the action is. Sprouting is not salvation. Fruitfulness represents salvation. There's also Satan in this uh, account, and uh, he plays an important role in the parable and explanation. Exactly how he does his snatching away work is not specified here. And he's outside of the natural realm, of course, so his snatching work is something not ultimately natural in origin, although he uses natural means. This is a troubling reality. It's troubling because the preacher is working hard to convey to you the Word of God, and potentially at the same moment that it's being spread, Satan is busily at work to snatch it. Like I say, I'm not able to explain exactly how that works. I do know, however, that the Bible tells us that the minds of those that don't believe have been blinded. They're still blinded even to that day, Paul said, reading the Bible, the Old Testament, which they had. I don't know, I don't even want to think if I'm up here giving the word of God that Satan is out there just gobbling it up and taking the sound of it out of your ears. You know, he's doing an awful lot of work to undo the work that I'm doing or that God is trying to do, really, that the Spirit of God is trying to do in your heart. The listener is hearing and Satan is trying to snatch away. You know, are you straining your ears trying to hear, listen in to what God's Word says? The Bible's going out and the devil's trying to delete it. We're trying to publish the Bible in digital format and Satan through governments is trying to censor it. This is literally happening right now. That's one of the ways that he does it. So we've got to try to get around that and get the Bible out other ways and so on. The devil is blinding the minds of those that believe not, taking advantage of depravity, using the sinful influences of the world to his advantage. Satan doesn't care if you're a totally distracted person going about this and that and work and entertainment and you know when's the ball game going to be on and everything else and you're just focused on that. He doesn't care. He's already accomplished his work. You're, you're, you're set, you know. He's fine. I'm going to go on and work on the next one. Satan's goal is to make it so that people will not believe. And what does 8.12 say? Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest. That is a purpose statement. His purpose is that they not believe and be saved. When you read the word lest, it's so that not. So that not they should believe and be saved. Here we are working to try to help people to believe and be saved, and he's working to try to cause people to not believe and not be saved. What a perverse operation he has. All he does is steal and kill and destroy. 
steal the word and try to destroy it and try to kill you in the process. Now, the devil's not the only reason that salvation doesn't happen. He's only blamed in one of the three cases, one of the three bad cases, that is. In the case of the second and third soils, you have the effects of the world, you know, the the cares, the pleasures, the things that choke out the, the effect of the word, and then the flesh ruining the growing process. So there's plenty of blame to go around. It's not just that we say the devil's all, you know, involved in all of it directly, but he uses it and his demons and all, using people to block the word of God. And so the good soil represents the noble and good heart, the Lord says. In verse number 15, the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with repentance. You might ask, where does that noble and good heart come from? Well, our theology teaches us it comes from God. But... From the human perspective, you can work to cultivate a noble and good heart. You can ask God to help you cultivate a noble and good heart. You can read the Word of God to cultivate that. That noble and good heart is marked by hearing and understanding, enduring obedience, and continuing continuing to patiently bear fruit. Listen to that list again. It's hearing and understanding the Word. It's enduring and obedience to the Word. And it's bearing fruit under the instruction of the word. The bad response to the message and the, the message of the, the word is the influence of the devil prevents people from believing and being saved. People receive the word with emotionalism, and that's all they have. They don't have intellect and real affections and will involved, and they fall away during testing. And then others are consumed by the things like anxieties, monies, money, and pleasures in this life. Keeping up with the Joneses, that sort of thing. Well, the Agricultural Testing Service is a helpful tool to check your soil and see what ingredients it needs to make it the most fruitful possible. And you can do that, in the, say, in the winter or in the early spring before you plant so you know how to fortify the soil with the proper nutrition, nutrients. But pre-testing a soil, the heart soil of a person is more difficult. The sure test of the soil of a person's heart is what happens when the Word of God hits it. So you can't do it pre-testing. You have to do it kind of live testing. You give them the Word and see what happens when the Word of God is planted. With that test in mind, What kind of heart soil do you have? Do you believe that your heart presents the best growing environment that it can to the Word of God? Do you understand and listen and believe it? Do you obey it? To bear fruit means to do the good works that the Word of God exhorts us to do. To hear it means to listen and understand. To keep it means to obey it. Is your heart set that direction, settled? That's what I'm all about. That's what I'm going to do, whatever the cost. Or has the devil so far succeeded in stealing the Bible from your heart? Has it become trampled down in the mad rush of life so that it cannot grow? Did you initially receive the Word of God with enthusiasm, but it was only an emotional response that failed to hold up under the lightest of pressure? Did you start out well, but your life is surrounded by weedy individuals and the Word of God fell on hard times? 
as your focus on work and home and social pursuits and investments and money and entertainment cut out all the nutrients and energy for the growth of your faith and the expression of it in the local church. You know, you've cut out the water, you've cut out the sunshine. What do you expect is going to happen? Do you shelve the Bible on Sunday afternoon or put it in a freezer, so to speak, and not pick it up for the next six days? Do you leave the Word of God swallowed whole, unchewed, and undigested so that it passes through the alimentary canal of your mind and is eliminated, thus giving little spiritual value, no nutrition or very little nutrition gained from it? Do you hear Scripture with a critical ear toward the speaker or read it with an eye toward technical issues or, or just thinking of cross-references and, and parallels of words like, oh, that makes me think of this one and that makes me think of that one. Look at how wonderful my memory is. Do you think about how a Scripture will fit in your seminary paper, not considering how it impacts your life or teaches you about God or calls you to obedience or informs your faith or shapes your following of Jesus, that's a word that I might put in for when I preach this at the seminary, thinking about it anyway. Is your life like a spiritual version of the Svalbard seed vault when it comes to the Word of God? Do you just store it up on cryo-freeze, holding it in stasis for hundreds of years? Or is your life like a well-tended garden, growing fruits from the seeds that are planted in it? That's for you to answer. I trust you will take some time to really answer. Not how you know you're supposed to answer it, but how it really is answered in your life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. I pray that you'll help us to evaluate ourselves and see whether we're more like a frozen seed vault or like a warm, sunny, well-watered garden. Thank you, Lord, for your spiritual work in us now. May, that, may the Spirit of God indeed do great work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.